the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Luke. Well, the religious leaders are stewing. Jesus, they confronted him and said, tell us by what authority do these things and who gave you it to you? Jesus said, well, answer my question, I'll answer yours. John's baptism, come from heaven or come from men? We haven't figured it out yet. Well, then I'm not answering your question. They were mad. Unable to arrest Jesus publicly because of the crowds who supported him. And so instead of dealing with him directly, they attempt to trick him into getting himself into trouble, either with the Romans or with the people. Uh, But they're going to discover, no matter how many traps you throw at Jesus, you can't stump him. Some of you may have saw the title for the sermon today and thought, oh, he's going to talk about me today. Those of you who aren't laughing didn't look at your bulletin. You can't stump Jesus. He will always be the smartest person in the room. My sermon's not about you. And so as we see Jesus answer these two groups, you know, may we see the importance of yielding to one who knows far better than us. So chapter 20, we begin in verse 20. And they watched him. These are the religious leaders. They were watched means to dog someone's steps. They were looking for any way that they could arrest him or get him in trouble with the Romans, any way they could. And so we we learn from the other gospels that the Pharisees and the Herodians, two normally antagonistic groups, come together to agree to send their best students, who maybe Jesus wouldn't know as corrupt, to go trick Jesus. So they sent forth spies. Uh, The word spies here means to crouch in the shadows waiting to trap someone. And what the shadows they're hiding in, it says here, are which should feign themselves just men. So the, the shadows they're hiding, these men hid behind, was the idea that these were actually righteous guys, righteous people, who were having a crisis of conscience and therefore genuinely coming to Jesus for help. Jesus certainly can't resist someone who's genuinely in need, Right? So they figure, we'll get him that way. And how are they going to get him? That they might take hold of his words. The phrase there means to gain information secretly about someone for the purpose of arresting or defeating them. So they want to trick him somehow or catch him in his words so that they might deliver him under the power and the authority of the governor. So the goal is to get Jesus to say something incriminating that they can take him to Pilate. Now, the people would be less likely, more fearful, to riot if the Romans arrested Jesus. And and the Romans, they might not care whether Jesus was innocent or guilty. They might just do away with him, especially when we consider the topic of their question in a little bit. Now, they come to him, verse 21, before they bring their question, they flatter him first to hopefully lower his defenses. They asked him, saying, Master, we know that you say and teach rightly, neither accept thou the person of anyone, but you teach the way of God truly. 
That's the best compliment a Bible teacher can get. You say and teach rightly. The word there means that which is in accordance with God's standards. You don't ever deviate from God's word at all. Neither do you accept the person of any, which means to show favoritism or partiality. And it's in the present tense, which means you never do this. You never do this. doesn't matter if it's your brothers. doesn't matter if it's your, your friends. doesn't matter if it's a politician. doesn't matter if it's a tax collector. doesn't matter if it's someone who's rich or poor. It doesn't matter. You tell the truth. You teach the way of God, the way God wants us to live, really. Master, you're a unique teacher. You don't show favoritism. You don't change God's word. You consistently tell people what God says. So having prepped Jesus with flattery, hopefully lowering his defenses, they finally spring their trap question. In verse 22, here it is. We have a crisis of conscience here. Is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar or no? The word lawful there, it doesn't mean are we allowed. It means are we required. It means to be obligatory. Are we obligated, are we required to pay tribute unto Caesar? Now, tribute is taxes, but it's taxes paid by a conquered people. So it's not like our taxes. It would be like if we invaded Mexico and made them pay taxes. Um, That would be the, the idea here, made them pay extra taxes. This really isn't an issue of whether they want to pay taxes or not. Israeli rulers taxed their people. Remember when Samuel warned the people when they wanted a king, he warned them that they, they're going to tax you, take your money. You know, I love what Paul says, render unto tribute to whom tribute is due, but it talks about you pay your taxes and it talks about how they're continually administering it. Oh, yes, they are. Governments everywhere are continually administering. They make sure they get your money. But the idea here isn't about that. The debate over this topic has to do with acknowledging a foreign ruler as their king. Uh, Deuteronomy 17, 15, Moses in this text gave instructions for when Israel would ask God for a king. In uh, 17, 14, it says, when you are come into the land which the Lord your God gives you and shall possess it and shall dwell therein and shall say, I will set a king over me like as all the other nations that are about me. You shall in any wise set him king over you, here's the requirement, whom the Lord your God shall choose. You don't get to pick him, I pick him. Here's another requirement. One from among your brethren shall you set king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And so this is where the debate raged. Were the Jews disobeying this verse in Deuteronomy 17, 15 by paying tribute to Caesar? It's a bit of a conundrum here because if Jesus says, well, yeah, you are disobeying the Lord, well, then the religious leaders could march right up to Pilate and accuse Jesus of telling the people not to pay tribute and trying to incite a rebellion against Rome. But if Jesus said, well, no, no, you're not disobeying the Lord, well, that was a very unpopular viewpoint and the people would turn against him because they hated paying that tribute to Rome. Pretty cunning trap, isn't it? Either way, there's danger. They've got him, right? But the religious leaders should have learned by now because they tried to trap Jesus before. That you can't trap Jesus because someone who knows everything will always be the smartest person in the room. Always. No matter how tricky you think you are, no matter how much you come up with the ideas. I remember I had an online discussion with someone years and years ago and when chat rooms were first coming around. And I was talking to this guy that I'd become friends with because uh, we had some common ground, which is why we're in the chat room. 
And he would say scripture here and there from time to time. Finally, I just private messaged him and I said, are you a Christian? He goes, oh, no. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, I don't want to tell you my story. It'll, make, it'll ruin your faith because he knew I was a pastor. And I said, try me. And so there's this long pause. And then he says, well the, well, the Bible's not true. And I said, well, okay, that's great. It's easy to say. I said, why do you say that? And they get a long pause. And all of a sudden, this big, huge wall of text shows up on my, my screen. And, and it says, how can there be this type of animal over here and this type of animal here if evolution was not blah, 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 blah. Didn't the Bible say it was, you know, this way or this way? I remember reading it, and I, I just typed in Genesis. I don't remember the exact verse. And it says, and it wrote, in the days of Peleg, the earth was divided. Come to find out, this guy had been an elder in a church, walked with the Lord for like 20 plus years. No one could answer that question. And he left the faith. Here's his response back to me. No one could ever answer that. I said, you left the faith over that? Come on, man. But it's a similar situation here where they feel like, well, we've got Jesus in a corner. No answer to this question. You're zapped either way, Jesus. But the Bible, when you understand the Bible, I'm not saying I can answer. I can't answer all your questions. I can't. I'm not Jesus. But the Bible has everything that pertains to life and godliness. It says in the knowledge of him, and that's where we get the knowledge from the word. So any answer you need, even if we haven't figured it out yet, it's in here somewhere. Not every answer, because it's not going to tell you how to fix your flat tire. But you don't need to know how to fix your flat tire. Someone else might be able to help you with that. But every answer you need an answer to, even if we can't, haven't figured it out yet, it's in there somewhere, and it'll be there. They figure they've got Jesus, but he's the smartest person in the room because he knows everything. And so in verse 23, it says, but he perceived their craftiness. The word there is the same word that was used when Satan tempted Eve. He beguiled her. He knew that this was, was a deception. And when he perceived that, he said to them, why do you tempt me? The word there perceived, it's, it doesn't mean that Jesus just read people really well. The word there means to come to a definite and clear understanding of something. Oh, no, he knew fully what was going on here. And again, Jesus didn't figure that out because he could read people well. Jesus knew everything that was going on because he is God. And while Jesus limited those privileges of deity at times, the scripture says there were times when he said, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know the day or the hour. No man knows the day or the hour but my father in heaven. How about you, Jesus? Nope, I don't know it either. So there were times that he limited his access to that omniscience, but he had access to it anytime he wanted it. Then you say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Can I give you a piece of advice? If you have a book, they're usually titled things like systematic theology. If you have a book that claims to have the answer to understanding every facet of the nature of God, use it in your fireplace. I remember there were three things I was told at, at Bible college that you will never in your finite mind fully be able to comprehend. And it is so true. The Trinity. The Bible teaches it, right? Clearly teaches it, lays it out for us. And, and we try to do it. And, and here's the problem. This is why I say to take those books and burn them. Because anytime you think you've got these infinite things figured out, whatever you think you figured out is somehow heresy. And I hear it all the time. No, I've got, I can do the Trinity. Pastor, well, I can describe it perfectly. It's like an egg, you know? And, and like the white, you know, is like the Father, and the shell is like the Son, and the yolk is the Holy Spirit. That's heresy. It's flat out heresy. Because the Bible teaches that God is three distinct persons, but one essence. If the yolk isn't the white, isn't the shell, 
That's not one essence. Heresy. No, no, Pastor, I can do do it. You know, it's it's like me. Like I'm a father and I'm a dad and and I'm a pastor. Three in one. Heresy, monomonarchianism. Not true. God is not revealed as one person with different functions. One essence, three persons. And if you try to wrap your brain all the way around it entirely, you will end up with heresy somehow. Does the Bible teach it? You bet. Bible teaches sovereignty of God, completely sovereign. He's the king of the universe. It also teaches that we have free will. Try to figure it out and in your logic, biblically we can figure it out, but try to figure it out in your logic how all that works, you're going to come up with heresy. And another area that people do it so often is with the incarnation. Jesus is fully God and fully man, 100% God, 100% man. You say that's impossible, that's 200%, that's two people. Yes. However, no. No, 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 Pastor, I've got to figure it out. Got to, no, heresy. Somewhere you're going to come into heresy. Somewhere you're going to come into heresy. So here's what I'm comfortable with. I'm comfortable with digging into this thing and understanding what it says about those three topics. And whatever holes are left in my logic, I'm fine with the holes. Because I don't need to know that. I'm a finite creature. I'm not infinite. I don't have all knowledge. So the Bible says that Jesus didn't think it was robbery, something to be grasped onto at all costs, to be equal with God. And that he became a man as a result, that he added to his deity humanity. If that's what the Bible says, I don't have to understand all the infinite details of what did that mean? What did he know? What didn't he know? Why did he know some things? Why did he know this? The Bible tells us clearly there are times that he accessed that omniscience where he, he came and, and like in John 2, I think it says where the people believed in Jesus, but it says, but he didn't commit to men because he knew it was in the heart of men. The Bible says nobody knows what's in the heart of man except God. I don't even know my own heart. That's why you can't, you can't do Disney. You can't follow your heart. Heart's deceitful and wicked above all things. That's what the Bible says. Who can know it? He can. So there are times he totally accessed it, like he does here. He perceived, he completely knew what was going on. It's Jesus accessing that omniscience. He said, why do you tempt me? Now, he could have dropped it there. He could have told him, I'm not going to answer your question. You're not genuine. You're not, this is not going to be a reasonable conversation. That's what he did last time. But Jesus does answer the question because there's a lesson they can learn this time. And so he says to them, show me a penny. It's the Roman uh, denarius. It's a silver coin. It was the the pay of a a Roman soldier for a day of work. Uh, It was a good pay back then. We would not consider it to be more than 17 or 18 cents today, but hey, we've come a long way. He says, show me that denarius. Whose inscription? Somebody, I'm sure plenty of people probably had it, so somebody holds it up and He says, whose image and superscription, whose picture and whose writing name or title is on it? Whose picture and whose title is on it? And they answered and said unto him, well, Caesar's. It's got his picture on there, his face, got his name written on there. And so he said unto them, well, render therefore unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's and unto God the things which be God's. Therefore, why? Because his name and his picture's on it. Because it belongs to Caesar... He's just letting you use it. Since that's the case, 
Then render means to pay back in fulfillment of an obligation. He's let you have that money to use it, so it belongs to him. You're obligated to give it back. It doesn't belong to you. Pretty good answer, right? Funny how we tend to still this day think that our money is our money. Isn't it funny? Like the money that's in my wallet now, little as it may be. If I go to a movie or the store or Dunkin' Donuts, whatever, and I put down the two bucks and you know, do whatever I need to do and get my product and walk away, someone else is going to hold that money and go, I got money, my money. But two seconds ago, it was my money. That person is then going to take that money and do something with it. It'll become someone else's money. And they're going to go, look, my money. Idiotic things to say is my money because it's never anybody's except the people who printed it because they can take it out of circulation. We think of money as our money, yet we give it away every day. Then it belongs to someone else, and long after I'm gone, others will claim it to be their money, even though at one point it was in my hands. That's a good, important lesson. Money is a tool, not a possession. It's never a possession. Someone said money does talk. It says goodbye. (laughs) Money can and will be taken from you. So don't treat it like it's yours. Ask God what he wants you to do with it. Then it can be a blessing and not a frustration. Now, they thought they had him trapped, but what a great answer here. I mean, how do you answer that? Give to Caesar what his name's on it, his picture's on it, obviously belongs to him. Give it back to him. And then give to God what belongs to God. Yes, pay the Roman tribute. You're not violating Deuteronomy 17.15 by giving Caesar back which belongs to him. Unless, unless you're not doing the second part. Render unto God the things that belong to God. See, if the Jews in Jesus' day paid the tribute to Caesar because they were giving their loyalty and their lives to him as their king, well, then they would be violating Deuteronomy 17.15 because that's what the point is. Only a king he chooses is to have that place in our life, right? That's what he's telling Israel. You want a king? Fine. Here's my rules. Only the king I choose can have that place in your life. So who did God choose? The guy standing right in front of him. Jesus. That's who he picked. And in Psalm 2, I won't read the whole psalm again that we read in our scripture reading, but in Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8, it says, I will declare the decree. Literally, it means, I will declare the decree of the Lord. He has said unto me, you are my son. This day have I begotten you. Ask of me and I shall give you the heathen for your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. God, his chosen king, is standing right in front of these guys who are trying to trick him over coins. Instead of worrying about who to give their coin to, why aren't they concerned with who they've given their heart to? That's the lesson. See, we can look at that coin and go, well, Caesar's on there and he's got his name on there. Okay, then take a look at a human being. Whose picture and whose name's on that? We're made in his image, the Bible says. Israel had his name implanted upon them. Israel ruled or governed by God. That's the name that was printed on them. But had they given him their nation? Had they given him their individual lives? Had they submitted to God's son like Psalm 2 warns them to? Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and judge you. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. That's the lesson. 
see in just a few days, these religious leaders are trying to trick him right here. These same people who were so worried about violating God's law to pay taxes to Caesar would cry out, we have no king but Caesar. And in doing so, they would violate the very verse they've been debating the issue of taxes on. And Jesus knows that's coming. So he's giving them here yet another warning so they can escape that judgment. He says, you think you understand Deuteronomy 17, 15 and you're gonna put me in the middle of some debate? The heart of that verse is about serving the one who made you in his image and stamped you with his name. That's the lesson. Please repent. Please stop. The king's right in front of you. Please surrender to him. Now we, we look back And it is easy to see their mistake. They rejected the one chosen by God, the one who made them in his image. They crucified Jesus, proclaimed their loyalty to Caesar, a ruler who would, a couple decades later, level their city and kill millions of their people. But they're dead and gone. We're here today. So what about you and me? Is Jesus your king? Is he my king? And do I give to God what belongs to him? What belongs to him? my life and all that comes with it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, it's one of many places in the New Testament that says something like this. What? What's, what's, your, what's your issue? Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and that you are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. If you're a Christian today, you've been twice stamped with his image. One, because he created you, and one, because he redeemed you. You know, one, because he called you after himself, made you in his image, but then also because he redeemed you and he gave you a new name, Christian, one who follows Christ, one who's like Christ. These spies couldn't anticipate such a beautiful answer because they didn't understand Deuteronomy seventeen fifteen. They didn't really know the scripture. So verse 26 says they could not take hold. They couldn't find any of his words to trap him with before the people. And they marveled. They just stood there like this. Marveled at his answer and they held their peace. They just quieted up. Now it's interesting. The other gospel writers tell us that these guys were like the crack students of the best rabbis in Jerusalem. These were the smartest, most promising young men in Israel. And they're stupefied in front of everyone. So the argument dies. Trap fails. But the religious leaders don't learn the lesson. And so the Sadducees say, move aside, young bucks. They figure it's time for them to take a crack at Jesus. And so in verse 27, it says, Then came to him certain of the Sadducees, which deny that there is any resurrection. And they asked him, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us, If any man's brother die, having a wife, and he die without children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed, produce a child, unto his brother. Therefore, there were seven brothers. Let's give you a hypothetical, Jesus. I hate hypotheticals because they're never real. Like, no one ever brings you a hypothetical that's actually going to happen. This thing here is never going to happen, which is why hypotheticals are dumb questions. People say there's no dumb questions. There are. This is one of them. There were therefore seven brethren, and the first took a wife and died without children. So the second brother took her to wife, and he died childless. And the third brother took her, and in like manner the seven also. And they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died too. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of them is she? For seven had her to wife. <laughs> we're so smart, Jesus. <laughs> I answer that. Now, what's the point here? The Sadducees were a religious group back then that only believed the first five books of the Old Testament were inspired. None of the rest of it. 
They didn't put much stock in God's word anyway, even though they believed this was their official point. And they hated the Pharisees. Now, part of their theological viewpoint was they didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in spirits. They didn't believe in heaven or hell. They didn't believe in an afterlife, any of those things. So they believed you died and it was the end. And it's not so much that they like to debate with the Pharisees whether there was an afterlife or not. They just like to poke fun at the Pharisees' belief in an afterlife, in the physical resurrection. And so now they figured, well, we can't, you know, they didn't get Jesus in trouble with the Romans. We'll just embarrass him so people, he won't be popular anymore, and then we can arrest him. And so they bring up this common ground with Jesus, the scripture, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us, if any man's brother die having a wife and he die without children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. That's from Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 6. And it's the law of levirate marriage. It was common in other places of that day besides Israel. But the reason it was such a big deal in Israel is because inheritance rights were a big deal. Land was never to exchange hands permanently, never. Every Israeli family would go on forever because of their inheritance. So like if, even if you came on hard times financially and you had to sell your property, go work as a servant or something like that, every seven years and every 50 years, the, the Sabbath year and the Jubilee, property would always return and revert to its original owners. All debts were forgiven, just how it was. So you could always count on, even if times were rough, that your family would continue on because the property would stay in your family's hands with one exception, if you don't have any children to pass it on to. If you have no children to pass it on to, then that family would end and the property would revert to the nearest relative. So to avoid this, Moses gave a law where the brother was to marry the widow. And the first child from that union would carry on the family name and not belong to the brother. So he would be raising up seed, providing for a child that would never carry on his name, but would go work the fields that belonged to his brother. And that way the family name would go on, okay? We have numerous lessons in scripture of people who try to go toe-to-toe with God. And do you know no one wins those engagements? There's not a single instance of anyone winning that engagement. I don't care what the movies say. It's way better to surrender ahead of time. Amen? Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.